Matthew 16, 1 to 12. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is the word of the Lord. One Nation Hope, it's, it's good to be with you this morning as we continue our series on the Gospel of, of Matthew and look again at the sign of Jonah. Before we turn to this text, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. God our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Gospel of Jesus Christ that it proclaims. And Father, we do ask that the words that follow would be faithful to your intentions to this text and Lord, that you would apply the truths of this text by your Spirit to our head to our hands, and to our hearts. And we ask all of these things, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you remember, Christ speaks before about the sign of Jonah, and he did so in Matthew 12. And in that passage, the scribes and the Pharisees again come to Christ, and they ask for a sign. And Christ responds to them that no sign will be given to them except for the sign of Jonah. Christ explains, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And we find in today's passage the very same dynamic. But we find it with greater force on the part of those who are demanding a sign. We read, The Pharisees and the Sadducees came and to test them, test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. This time, both the Pharisees and the Sadducees make this demand, and we are told that they do so in order to test Christ. <clears throat> and it's important to note that this word is the same Greek word used to describe Satan's actions in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
What is here translated in today's passage as test was there translated as tempt. In some way, shape, or form, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are mimicking the actions of Satan. Recall, too, that in the earlier request for a sign in Matthew 12, what was asked for was a sign in general. However, here we find a much more specific demand. This time they tell Jesus exactly what kind of sign they want. Not just any old sign. What they want is a sign from heaven. And this, too, harkens back to Satan's temptation of Christ in the wilderness. Satan, too, made specific demands on how Christ was to prove that he was the Son of God. Turn this bread into stone. Throw yourself, <clears throat> throw yourself off the temple, but don't die. And here, with a kind of serpentine suggestiveness, the Pharisees and Sadducees demand a sign from heaven, from the sky, from up there. They want Jesus to prove who he is on their own terms. They say, we'll follow you, but we're going to do so on our own terms, which really means that you, Jesus, should follow us. But Christ responds, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. And why is it the case? Why is it evil and adulterous for us to ask for a sign in this way? Well, because it assumes that you know better than Christ does what you need and that you know better than Christ does what is your greatest joy, your deepest desire, and your fullest happiness. It's evil because it claims to know who and what you are better than does God. And it's idolatrous because it desires something other than what God seeks to give us as our greatest happiness. If God is God and we are creatures that He has made and at every instant creatures that He sustains, then we ultimately have no say in the matter. We can't tell God what will make us most happy. He made us and He already knows. These things are outside of our choice. They're built into our very nature. And try as we might, we simply cannot change this. Accordingly, Christ directs the religious leaders to the very place from which they would like to see a sign. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Christ redirects them. It's not a matter of demanding signs, but of interpreting them rightly. The sky is the sky. The sky acts as the sky acts. God has made each aspect of the created world, and it carries out its own role and vocation. We can interpret the sky, and through things like scientific investigations, we can even better understand the sky. But we cannot dictate and demand what the sky will do. The sky is the sky. We cannot demand that it do this or that. No, all we can do is interpret the sky rightly. When the sky is this color at that time, it means that today or tomorrow we will have this or that sort of weather. We don't have a say in the matter. 
But it is up to us to plan for the weather that will come. In the same way, Christ does not give them the sign that they ask for. No, instead, He urges them to interpret the one sign that He will give them, the sign of Jonah. We can only understand the sky by rightly interpreting its colors. And we can only understand ourselves by rightly interpreting the sign of Jonah. The sky is a certain kind of thing. We can't change this. And we are a certain kind of creature. We can't change that. For instance, to borrow a classic example, consider the acorn. The acorn is a particular kind of creating thing. Accordingly, it needs certain things to flourish. Water, soil, sunlight, and not others. Even more, the acorn has a particular kind of flourishing and perfection. It's the oak tree in full fruition. It simply cannot grow into a mulberry bush. And this is an apt illustration because Scripture's preeminent description of human flourishing, Psalm 1, uses the very image of a tree in full fruition. If the acorn demands to grow by saturating its roots in gravel and concrete, the loving response would be to reject this request. This would lead to the tree's death. And if the sky demanded to change its colors, the loving response would be to reject this request. It would undo the very natural laws by which the sky is the sky. And if humans demand something other than what they really need and demand some false form of flourishing, then the loving response is to reject this request. And of course, this is precisely what Christ has done. You cannot change an acorn, but you can interpret it rightly. The same is true for the sky, and the same is true for us. And so think about this. Really think about this. Do you believe that you are like the acorn? Do you really believe that you have a particular nature, with particular needs, with a particular kind of flourishing? Do you really believe that it is our great task as humans not to demand that humans be this or that, but instead to rightly interpret the kind of creature that we actually are? The novelist Walker Percy in his book Lost in the Cosmos, he writes the following, You live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, Man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. In many ways, we know more about the human than ever before. Because of the great gift of modern medicine, for instance, we know so much more about the human body and how to care for it. However, Percy, who himself was a medical doctor, he's saying that we can know many, many things about the human but still not know what the human actually is. We can still fail to know what the human is for. We can still fail to know what full human flourishing is. And if we can't say what the human is, we are like someone who has studied and studied and studied each aspect of the acorn, but has never actually seen the oak tree and so has no idea that the acorn is for the oak tree, that the oak tree is the fullest and realest form of the acorn, that the oak tree is the flourishing of the acorn. This is what Percy is saying. 
We know much. We know a lot about the human. But we have no idea what the human is. But thankfully, Christ tells us. And Christ does so by the sign of Jonah. This is not the sign that we demand. That would mean that we decide what we are. No, this is the sign that we need and should want. This is the sign that lets us interpret what humanity actually is. But here's the rub. This means that God tells us, one, what we need, and two, what our happiness and flourishing actually are. We can't decide these things for ourselves any more than we could impose colors upon the sky or make the acorn a carnivore. The sign of Jonah rightly directs us both to our true human need and our true human flourishing. But these are rejected by the religious authorities. In particular, the Pharisees reject that the sign of Jonah shows us our need. And the Sadducees reject that it shows us our flourishing. And as we'll see, we must be on guard against both. As Christ tells the disciples and us, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. As Christ goes on to tell his disciples, he's not warning them about bread. He's speaking about the teaching of the religious leaders. Like leaven in a loaf, such teaching can start small and grow and grow and grow secretly, subtly, so that it comes to fill the whole of our hearts. And we must be on guard against this. So then, let's look at how the sign of Jonah shows us what we truly need, contra the Pharisees, and what our true flourishing and happiness is, contra the Sadducees. The sign of Jonah consists in two main movements, a going down and a going up. Christ tells us that just like Jonah went down into the sea, the very Old Testament image of chaos and into the belly of a fish, so too will Christ descend into the greatest chaos of death. This is known as the humiliation of Christ, and it's the first movement of the sign of Jonah. It's the downward movement, and it rightly interprets what we truly and desperately need. However, Whatever is wrong in the world, the Pharisees believed that they could correct it on their own terms, by their own efforts. They thought that they could set things right. In particular, they believed that they could keep the law of God sufficiently well on their own effort. And of course, the law of God calls us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And it calls us to do this every single instance of our lives. So clearly, the Pharisees must have thought that there was some leeway here. And perhaps, this strikes us as a very dignifying view of humanity and our abilities. Of course, we can do what God requires of us. To say otherwise is a deep affront to who we are. That would just degrade our humanity. Whatever it means to be human, we think, it can't mean that we are unable to do what it is that humans need to do. This is why in the modern world, like the Pharisees, there's a lot of pushback against the Christian doctrine of sin. 
The Christian tradition affirms that sin has infected each and every one of our faculties as human beings. This does not mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be, but it does mean that we bear a corruption in both our body and our soul, and it keeps us from the proper form of life, the life of love, that God intends for us. And so, many would say that this is just a pessimistic denial of human dignity. To affirm sin is to degrade the human. However, the philosopher Charles Taylor is helpful on the score. He points out that if we lose the doctrine of sin, we actually lose much more than we think. In the mind of the Pharisees, all that they need is a little tweak, some good advice, some wise commands, a little push. And so, we're really not all that bad. And yes, this seems like we're affirming human dignity, but here's the catch. If all we need is just a tweak to reach our proper human flourishing, and so if our current life isn't all that bad, then our flourishing can't be all that great. Then this is about as good as it gets. Then life as it is now, well, that's pretty much the human equivalent of the oak tree. As Taylor points out, yes, Christianity does say that we are much worse off than we would diagnose ourselves to be. But if that's the case, then the way things are is a far cry from the way that things should be. If the world as we know it is deeply flawed, then our telos, our flourishing, our ultimate happiness, the human version of the oak tree is actually much, much greater than this. In the eyes of the Pharisees, we really don't need to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in our neighbor as ourselves. In some way, there's a lessening there. Because, come on, no one can do this. Yeah, maybe we can approximate it to more or less degrees, and sure, we can be good enough, but we can't really hope for the realization of this perfect love that God calls us to. And so they are, in in Taylor's phrasing, flying at a low altitude. Even more, if this is as good as it gets, or just about as good as it gets, death can't help but be the last word. And how optimistic can we really be about life if we know that it will end in death? How optimistic can we really be if we know that one day we will say goodbye to everyone we love if they don't say goodbye to us first? How optimistic can we really be if one day, because of the onset of old age and sickness, then physically speaking, each day will be worse than the day before? How optimistic can we be if our life can be taken quite suddenly from us, either by illness or accident? This cannot help but put a very low ceiling on our flourishing. If all of this is true, then we are meant to be quite shriveled oak trees. Yet even with regards to death itself, we still possess the leaven of the Pharisees, thinking that we don't need Christ, thinking that we can solve the effects of sin by our own efforts. For instance, there's a wealthy entrepreneur that's in the news right now. He's a 45-year-old tech CEO who is, is spending millions of dollars to try to reverse the aging process. And by use of the latest medical technology, he's committed to reclaiming his 18-year-old body. As one article explains, he sees a team of 30 doctors for regular and sometimes invasive tests. 
This goal and its deeply intrusive and rigorous interventions, they're taking over this man's life. And as he told one interviewer, what I do may sound extreme, but I'm trying to prove that self-harm and decay are not inevitable. Human death and its decay are both the punishment and the result of sin. Death is the natural consequence of that most unnatural action, sin. To sin is to turn away from God, from the very source of life. And so to sin is to turn away from life into death. This man is right to feel an aversion to death and decay. Even more, he is right to think that this decay need not be inevitable. But he, like the Pharisees, thinks that he does not need the sign of Jonah. This man is fighting a losing battle, and even if he succeeded and added a few more years to his life, would that really be all that great? He would just be adding a few extra centimeters to an already truncated oak tree. This CEO would do well to listen to another tech CEO, Steve Jobs of Apple who in a 1996 interview with Wired gave a much deflated view of what mere human achievement could do. Jobs reflects, we're born, we live, for, we live for a brief instant, and we die. It's been happening for a long time. Technology isn't changing it much, if at all. Again, as Taylor tells us, if our current existence is deeply corrupted by sin, then we are meant for much, much more than this. If we are going to be taken high, then we must acknowledge just how low sin has taken us. And again, the sign of Jonah takes us very low indeed, all the way to Sheol. And in so doing, it shows us what we need. Again, human death is the punishment and consequence for sin. We feel, just like this tech CEO, that this decay and corruption must be defeated. But unlike him, we must admit that we need Christ to do this. We find the original descent of Jonah in Jonah 1. Jonah is running away from God, and this is the very image of sin. He's running away from the very source of life. And Jonah foolishly attempts to flee by the sea, the very same water that God has created and sustained. Yet to bring Jonah to his senses, God brings a storm upon the water. We read, The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. As Christ directed the religious leaders, Jonah too must look to the sky and make the right interpretation. From the sky comes the wind of God, the storm of God that's meant to bring Jonah back to his senses. Jonah interprets the sky rightly, and at Jonah's own insistence, the crew in the ship throw him overboard. We read the following about the sailors. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. 
Jonah is thrown overboard to end the storm. Yet the sailors fear that they are staining their hands with innocent blood. They are not. God intended them to do this. And Jonah is not innocent. And in fact, God will save Jonah's life through this. So then, what is the connection to Christ as the sign of Jonah? But we too suffer a storm, one of sin and death and decay. And the only way to end its raging is for this new and better Jonah to go down into the very heart of the earth. The sea was the very image of chaos and disorder in the Old Testament, but there is a deeper chaos and a deeper disorder than this raging water, that of death. And this is the much deeper descent made by Christ. And unlike the old Jonah, this new Jonah does have innocent blood. Christ, after living the one true life of perfect love for God and neighbor, suffers the punishment and consequence of sin, that of death, though he himself was without sin. On our behalf, taking the punishment that we deserve, Christ was killed on the cross. Christ's human body was laid in the tomb and his human soul descended to the place of the dead. We must come to terms with this. Only then can we truly understand how low the sign of Jonah takes us. Only then can we truly understand how deep Christ must go to meet our need. Only then can we understand what alone can conquer the decay and corruption of sin and death. And only then can we make the upward movement. Christ did not stay dead. Christ was raised from the grave, and then he was raised even higher. Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And all of this is the second movement of the sign of Jonah. This is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. And this is the same resurrected life that Christ promises, promises to us. And it's here that he confronts the Sadducees. This is because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They don't believe that this is our ultimate purpose and tell us in flourishing and happiness. They don't believe that Christ's present, which is the certain future of the Christian, is the human equivalent of the oak tree. And so, while the Pharisees rejected the sign of Jonah because they didn't think they needed it, the Sadducees reject it because they don't want it. The sign of Jonah says that we need the death of Christ to conquer sin and its effects, contra the Pharisees. And the sign of Jonah says that our true happiness lies in sharing with Christ his resurrected life, contra the Sadducees. Theologian Oliver O'Donovan, he writes the following about this upward movement of the sign of Jonah, speaking on the resurrection and ascension of Christ and what this means for us. O'Donovan writes, In Christ's conquest over death and in his glorification at the Father's right hand, we see man as he was made to be, not subject to angelic forces of sin and mortality which presently oppress him, but able for the first time to take his place in the cosmos as its Lord. The triumph of the Son of Man prepares the way for the future triumph of his brethren, mankind as a whole. 
This is an exceptionally high view of humanity. Yes, it assumes the reality of sin, but certainly sin can be no affront to our dignity if this is what we are meant for. Yes, the acknowledgement of sin takes us low, but what could ever take us higher than this? And so this is what we should want, just as an acorn should desire to be an oak tree. This is what we should desire. To rest our hearts in something else, ultimately something lower, is to let the leaven of the Sadducees corrupt our desires, telling us that this life as we now know it is all that there is. Even more, Christ's resurrection, as O'Donovan tells us, is meant to be our ultimate guide in understanding our right relation with all things. In the resurrection, we see that we are rightly related to God, loving Him in full communion and joy. We are rightly related to neighbor, loving the other as ourself. And we are rightly related to creation, stewarding it in love as we were always meant to do. And this is a very full future. Just like the acorn must be rightly related to sun and soil and water, so we must exist in the right relation to God and neighbor and creation. And these relations are fully revealed in the resurrection of Christ and Christ's own birthing, bursting forth from the ground with the majesty and vitality of a mighty oak. So then, we have to ask ourselves, does this move us? Does this future grip our hearts? And this is as much as to say, do we truly want the one thing that will make us happy? C.S. Lewis puts it like this, God gives us what he has and not what he has not. He gives the happiness that there is, not the happiness that is not. If we will not learn to eat the only food that the universe grows, the only food that any possible universe ever can grow, then we must starve eternally. This alone is our sun and soil and water. Unlike the Sadducees, we must learn to desire this upward movement of the sign of Jonah. We must learn to trust Christ that our ultimate happiness lies here and here alone. And so, learning to long for this is an act of faith in Christ. Forming this desire is an act of trust in Christ. And it's a key part of saving faith. Again, as we talked about last week, desire is an essential part of our faith in Christ. We trust that Christ has accomplished what we need. This is the descent of the sign of Jonah. And we trust that Christ has fully and certainly secured what we should want. This is the ascent in the sign of Jonah. And so we must learn to trust that this really is our best. Even more, we must learn to trust that all other options, being the kinds of creatures we are, will force us to starve eternally. St. Augustine gives us a helpful picture for this purpose. In his City of God, Augustine attacks the many, many gods worshipped by the Roman pagans. He points out that they have countless gods for countless different things. There are distinct gods for childbirth and medicine and pleasure and military victory and family life and silver and commerce and vigor and chance happenings and so on and so forth. So many gods are there, Augustine points out, that no one can really even keep track of them. 
In fact, Augustine notes that there is not only one God for the farming of corn, but a distinct God for each phase of the corn's growth. An example relevant to, to Iowa, I think. Of course, the Romans were supposed to honor all of the gods of the city. However, Augustine notes that there is a goddess that bears the name Felicity, and she is the goddess of true happiness. And so Augustine, he asks his readers, if this is the God who grants happiness, and if happiness is what all people truly seek, what all people cannot help but seek, then why not throw off all of those other gods and simply devote yourself to her? If she alone is the giver of true happiness, then all the gifts that the other gods might give will they'll ultimately fall flat. Why don't the Romans then forget all their other gods and focus simply on her? Why look anywhere else if this alone is where happiness is found? And of course, Augustine goes on to say that these are false gods. He, he says they're deceptive demons, in fact, and that only God can give and is true happiness. However, this picture of the Roman pantheon, this Roman roster of gods, is helpful for thinking about our own hearts. Ask yourself, if you lived in Rome as a pagan and had to pick one of these many gods to worship, who would you choose? Imagine that this one god will give you exactly what you ask for. And be honest, there's a god of sexual pleasure. Would you go to that temple? There's a god of career success. Would you go to that temple? There's a god of reputation and status. Would you go to that temple? There's a god of wealth. Would you go to that temple? There's a god of successful, healthy children. Would you go to that temple? Or would you go to Felicity, the god of happiness? You're not sure what this happiness would consist in, but you know that this alone is where happiness is to be found. Would you be willing to accept the only true happiness that there is for the human, whatever that entailed? Would you be willing to admit that perhaps true happiness is not found in romance, or sexuality, or career, or reputation, or wealth, or social approval? Would you be willing to let go of these things, come whatever may, if true happiness was to be found elsewhere? In many ways, worshiping this god Felicity alone would be a very scary prospect, because who knows where it would lead us? But at the same time, what other choice would we have? Are we willing to say that these other goods are not the greatest good? Well, with the sign of Christ, or sign of Jonah, Christ puts us in very much the same situation. The sign interprets us. It tells us what we are. It tells us what we need and its downward movement. And it tells us what we should want, revealing our only ultimate flourishing in its upward movement. It says, Felicity, happiness is here and nowhere else. Can you trust this? Would you be willing to come to Christ with no conditions? If you say, 
Yes, I'll follow Christ as long as I can dictate the use of my money, my sexuality, my goals, my plans, my ambitions, my career, my schedule, my resources, my relationships. Then you're not really coming to Christ. You're seeking happiness elsewhere. Christ is felicity. Christ is true happiness. Yet to come with any of these conditions is instead to pay homage to another God at another altar. It is to distrust that happiness is here in Christ. It is like the religious leaders demanding their own sign from Christ, claiming to know better than Him what we need and what we want. And so Christ calls us to faith. To leaven all of our being with faith, with the belief and the trust that He has gone to the lowest depths to provide our greatest need, and that He has ascended to the highest heights to secure our fullest happiness, now in part, and one day in full. This is the sign of Jonah. And one day, this new Jonah will come again from that very place He tells us to look, the sky. And he will bring with him our full human flourishing, if only we trust that he is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. Let us pray. God our Father, thank you for the sign of Jonah. Thank you, Lord, that you have taken the consequences of sin upon yourself, that we might be freed of them. And thank you, Lord, that you have been raised from the dead to resurrected life, never to die again, perfect and full communion with God and neighbor and creation. Lord, I pray that that certain future would stir our hearts in great desire. We ask these things and we thank you for these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.